Before we dive into verse 12, which is where we left things off last week, I want to recap our approach, the approach we're going to be taking to the various stories we'll we'll, we'll approach in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a heavy hitter. He's quick moving, rapid fire pace. And so when we approach a narrative, when we approach a story in the Gospel of Mark, we'll have three basic approaches. I'm systematic. I like to think about these things in a very organized manner. And so we'll always begin with the scene of activity. We'll unpack exactly what's happening. Uh, We'll give in any historical references, any uh, geographical cursors that might help us uh, unpack the scene of activity. Secondly, we'll then look at relevant questions that might not be particularly addressed. And the text, we don't always assume that everyone sitting here is a believer. As a matter of fact, we welcome the skeptic to come and, and, and join our study through Scripture. And so with, with that mindset, we want to make sure that we're continuously looking and answering relevant questions, removing obstacles uh, for the gospel to come to the heart uh, of all men. And then our third approach will be to uh, make some simple observations that'll help us dig below the scene of activity, what's actually happening, and enable us to uncover the deeper significance of the events we'll be looking at. Scene of activity, relevant questions, simple observations is our approach to all of the narrative and the gospel of Mark. And so, with that being said, verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. You'll note in chapter 1, Mark using the word immediately, often. And Jesus, we're told, was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and we're told that the angels ministered to him. Now let's approach this narrative with the scene of activity. John. John is baptizing there at the shore of the Jordan. Jesus has come to be baptized by John. He's been baptized, as we discussed last week, for two basic reasons. First, Jesus came to be baptized so that he could be identified with sinful man. For what purpose? For what intention? Jesus came to be identified with sinful man so that sinful man could identify with Jesus when they found themselves in need of a Savior. The second purpose behind Jesus' baptism is that he came to be identified by sinful man. To be identified with sinful man, and secondly, to be identified by sinful man. As John dunks Jesus, and as Jesus emerges from the water, the sky violently parts into two. It's torn into two pieces. The Holy Spirit visibly descends and rests upon Jesus. Then a voice audibly declares from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The entire audience present that day, present there at the shore of the Jordan, they witnessed an incredible, awesome scene. And we're told that the Spirit immediately, immediately, drove him into the wilderness. Literally, this word to drive is to cast or to drive out. He drove Jesus. The literal interpretation can be that he compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness with a sense of absolute 
urgency. It wasn't as though the Spirit was making a suggestion. The Spirit drove him, compelled him, moved him into the wilderness, immediately following this very visible scene. Why? Could it have been that was such an awesome scene that those present, that those witnessing this event might have felt inclined to have made Jesus their King, their Messiah, right at that very moment? Before Jesus' ministry had ever begun, that right there it could have been derailed by a mob, uh, this fanatic mob filled with this sense of amazement and wonderment could have taken him there at Jordan, gone to Jerusalem, and have wanted to start some sense of revolution? Could they have wanted to make Jesus king right there at the spot? Could have been. Now, while in the wilderness, Mark tells us that Jesus, and this continues just the basic scene of activity, driven into the wilderness, Mark tells us he's tempted for a period, tempted by Satan, for a period of 40 days. Now, though Matthew chapter 4 and Luke record three specific temptations that occurred during this time period, it's important for us to note that Mark's language here indicates that the temptation was not just three, but that the 40-day period of wilderness temptation included relentless temptation. That it wasn't as though it was three and it was done, but rather it was 40 days of continuous, relentless, non-stop temptation that no doubt probably climaxed with these three temptations that Mark and Luke both reference, but that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days of temptation. Now the relevant questions that come from us from the text is first, could Jesus have actually been tempted or solicited to do evil. I mean, if you're approaching this, the temptation situation, Jesus, the Son of God, in the wilderness, could Jesus have been tempted to do evil? Now, the answer might surprise you, because the answer is no. Because Jesus was the Son of God, and Mark has made this clear from the beginning, Chapter 1, verse 1, Mark makes it clear that Jesus was the Son of God. He continues to make sure we know that he wasn't just the Son of God there at the baptism, but he had always been the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, 100% God and 100% man, that Jesus possessed a sinless nature that made him different and distinct from the rest of humanity. I personally believe and think that I can make a solid biblical case that there was no way that Jesus could have sinned or chosen to sin as it would have gone against his very nature. Now, sometimes when we delve into this particular conversation and we delve into this complex issue, people will then want to say and make a comparison between Adam, the first sinless man, and Jesus, the second sinless man. And they'll build the case that Adam could be tempted to do evil because, well, he was tempted and did evil, right? And now we have Jesus, the second sinless man, being tempted to do evil. If he's like Adam, couldn't he have done evil, technically? Could he have sinned? The problem with that argument is the reality that Adam was not the son of God. Yes, they were similar, 
and the sense that they were both human, that they were both born sinless. The distinct difference that separates Adam from Jesus is that Adam wasn't God. He was literally 100% man, and that was it. Jesus was different than Adam in the sense that he was also 100% God. And so that particular argument breaks down when you begin to examine the nature of Jesus being distinct from the nature of Adam. He was God, and so he couldn't have sinned. You know, we're told later on in Scripture that Jesus became sin for us, but note the distinction. Jesus didn't choose to be sin. He became sin. There is no way that Jesus could have succumbed to the temptation situation. And the reality is I don't think Jesus actually being tempted to do evil was the whole purpose behind it. We'll get to it in a moment. The second question then that's relevant coming off the first is does this mean that Jesus' temptation situation, that the temptations that Jesus experienced there in the wilderness were less than the experience that we engage with temptation? I mean, if Jesus couldn't sin to begin with, was his temptation less than ours? Now, the answer to that question might also be different than what you would expect, because the answer is no. Jesus' temptation, based upon this logic, would have been actually much worse than our experience. Though we're told in 1 Corinthians that we'll never be tempted beyond what we can handle. The pressure of temptation, by its very nature and by the very concept, typically rises to our breaking point. Though the Bible tells us we'll never be tempted beyond what we can handle, temptation rises to our threshing point, to our breaking point, the pressure of it. Now, like working out a muscle, God allows temptation to push our resilience, to push our resolve, to push our dependence upon the Lord. And the process of temptation and these pressures, our faith and our capacity to stand in the midst of incredible temptation grows stronger and stronger and stronger. If there's not pressure, if we're not pushed to the breaking point, then there's not room for growth like our muscles. If you go to work out and you never feel a burn, if you work out, never break a sweat, you're not actually doing anything. You're not actually working out. You're not burning any fat. You're not burning any calories. You're not building any muscle. Last Saturday, I went and played volleyball, an intense game of volleyball, to the point where, I mean, it was four hours of not just casual, like, little bit of volleyball here, I might move over there and dig, spike a little. No, this was intense four-on-four volleyball. And when I got home, I could barely move. I'm not kidding. Last Sunday morning, to get onto the platform, I had to take a breath before I got to the stage just to get my legs to move. I mean, my legs were throbbing. They were burning. I took more ibuprofen in about a three or four day period than I have, I think, in my entire life. I mowed my yard on Tuesday on the lowest setting possible 
because I was literally just waddling my way around the yard and I'd get to where I have to turn around and I'd throttle it down, I'd breathe, I'd kind of work it around and then I'd start it again to go the other direction. I mean, I, it was brutal, but my legs were burning. Now, wh what, what was happening? I was breaking down my muscle. I pushed them to the breaking point. I recovered this week, right? I went and played volleyball again. And I'm not nearly as sore today as I was last week. Because why? I'm developing endurance. I'm developing resilience. I'm developing a certain kind of dependency. That's how temptation works. God will never tempt us beyond what we can handle. But God will tempt us. God will allow temptation to come our way to the point that we are pushed to our breaking point. For what end? So that our faith grows, our dependence grows, our resilience grows. Now think about it. Think about the logic here, the progression. Temptation always pushes us to our breaking point by its pure concept. Jesus's temptation situation then was much worse than ours. Why? Because Jesus, being the sinless son of God, didn't have a breaking point. He didn't have a breaking point. There was no threshold. Since he didn't have a breaking point, Jesus experienced a level of temptation that you and I can't even fully grasp and will never experience. You can make the case that during these 40 days, Jesus experienced the most extreme, intense period of temptation ever experienced by a human being. Jesus' temptation was much worse than ours because he had no breaking point. Now, there's a third question before we begin to unpack these and some observations that I do want to address. Third question is how do we know Jesus remained sinless throughout this period of temptation? I mean, Mark doesn't actually tell us that. Matthew and Luke don't seem to necessarily indicate it. Like, how do we know that Jesus endured and ended up being sinless, that he didn't succumb in any way? Now, Mark, it's interesting. He provides us two subtle details in our text that are often overlooked and confused because they're confusing that I think seem to provide the indication that throughout this 40 days of temptation that Jesus remained sinless. First, Mark says that Jesus was with the wild beasts. I listened to probably seven different pastors teach on this passage, and no one exactly had an idea what in the world Mark was indicating by Jesus was with the wild beasts. But one pastor made an observation that Mark places a very strong emphasis on the word with, that in the original language, the word with has a certain unique and abnormal emphasis. Now, the thought is that Jesus was not spending 40 days with wild beasts in the sense that he was like running from mountain lions, you know, or hiding from leopards that might be making their way throughout the wilderness. That Jesus uh, wasn't at conflict with wild animals during the temptation, trying to survive from the lions and bears and tigers, oh my. But rather that during these 40 days with the wild beasts, that Jesus was instead at peace with the wild beasts and wild animals. You know, the animosity 
between mankind and the rest of the animal kingdom seems to actually be a byproduct of the sin of mankind. Before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no hostility between man and the other animals. And we're even told that at the end of things and the millennial kingdom, that a description is that the child will lie down with the lion. You know, that, there, that, that things will be restored, that the animosity that exists between the animal kingdom and humanity is a byproduct of sin. Now, if Jesus, being sinless, is in the wilderness, it seems as though that he enjoyed total harmony with creation, which can be a proof that he remained sinless through the 40 days. The other thing that Mark mentions here is that Jesus was ministered to by the angels. Now, as the sinless God of the universe, the angels were in complete servitude to the will of Jesus. One can make this case that if Jesus had fallen into sin, had succumbed to sin and temptation, that the angels now would probably no longer be ministering to Jesus in that kind of capacity two thoughts that Mark lays out. Now, our first observation. God purposefully led Jesus and therefore us into tough situations. I mean, my first observation from the text is, is the first four words. Immediately, the Spirit drove. That the whole scene, the whole temptation situation was ordained by God. This wasn't an accident. I mean, the temptation situation that Jesus faced, it wasn't accidental. It wasn't a byproduct of some series of poor choices that Jesus had made. I mean, our text is specific that the Spirit drove, pushed, moved Jesus into the wilderness for this purpose. You know, we should understand that life with Christ isn't always a walk in the park. Following Jesus doesn't mean that life now magically becomes simple or easy, as there's some denominations and theologies that would teach. The Bible indicates that God, with purpose, allows temptations and trials and difficult circumstances to come our way, not for our destruction, but for a reason and for a purpose and for our betterment. You know, our outlook when we face a tough situation, our outlook is often that we pray for escape. Have you ever found yourself doing that? I mean, a tough situation at work comes along, a tough situation at home comes along. Maybe financially a tough situation has come your way. And often our prayers are, and they're passionate, Lord, get me out of this mess. Lord, do something so that what I'm in ceases, it stops, it goes away. Haven't you prayed that? I know I have. But understand, our outlook should change. Because if God has allowed my current situation to come into my life, not for my destruction, but for my betterment, for my benefit, for my blessing, then my prayer shouldn't be, Lord, get me out of this mess, but should rather be, Lord, get me through it. Lord, help me endure it. Lord, enable me to see beyond the temporary and into the eternal so that I can leave this situation a better person. You know, sometimes I think we pray that the Lord would get us out of the very things the Lord intended for blessing because we don't like to be uncomfortable. I mean, we don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like stretching. 
but we need it. It's clear, my first observation, God led Jesus into the wilderness for temptation. If he would lead his own son, knowing that it was good for him to do this, then is it of any surprise or should we be shocked when God does the same for you and for I? The Lord uses these things to grow me and to stretch me and to better me. My second observation here is that Jesus is qualified, abundantly qualified, to help me through my own struggles. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and we brought this up last week, but we'll reiterate the point. Hebrews tells us in these verses, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, So let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now understand the purpose of Jesus experiencing temptation was not so that he would fall into sin or remain sinless. It wasn't for his testing. Sometimes when we look at the temptation situation, we think that this was how God tested Jesus to make sure he was ready. Or sometimes we approach the temptation situation and we will say, this is finally the great cosmic showdown. The final battle between Jesus and Satan. The okay corral. Like we often approach the temptation situation of saying this was a time of Jesus and his testing so that when he approached his ministry, he was ready, that he proved he was good for. Understand, God was already pleased with Jesus at the baptism. Jesus didn't have to prove anything. He didn't have to go through testing. The whole point here wasn't for him to battle Satan. I mean, Satan's not Jesus's foe. He's God. He created Satan. He made him. Creator, creation, it's that simple. Why? What's the purpose? The purpose was so that Jesus could experience the human condition. That was the purpose of temptation. So that he could then aid us in our own experiences. The purpose of temptation was identification with the human experience as it was with the baptism of Jesus. Now, as we've already mentioned, Jesus's temptation was the most extreme temptation anyone had ever experienced because Jesus lacked a breaking point. Now, in my mind, this gained Jesus some street cred. I mean, this gains him a certain level of credibility when it comes to helping me through my own experiences or my own temptation. Jesus experienced the greatest temptation any human being could have ever experienced because he had no breaking point. I have a breaking point, which means that my level of temptation, my experience with temptation will never get to what Jesus has already experienced. So that when Jesus says, hey, I've been tempted, I've endured this. I know what it's like. He can give me some advice. I mean, when someone does something to the most extreme, doesn't it give them like some credibility to me who will never do something really extreme? I mean, like, for example, if I'm really amped up to like, I'm going to climb Stone Mountain, why you would do something so ridiculous? I'm going to go climb Stone Mountain, you know? And so like, I'm going to, I'm going to train for this. I'm going to get gear for this. Like it's, 
it's about 5,000 feet in elevation. Like it's, you, you know, like little kids walk up it. But let's just say, like, I'm getting myself excited to climb the great Stone Mountain. And I happen to have a friend who's scaled Mount Everest, the tallest, most treacherous climb on the planet, the most extreme. Like people die, no one dies climbing Stone Mountain, unless they're really drunk and go the wrong direction. That's a different story. I'm climbing Stone Mountain and I get advice from someone who climbs Mount Everest. He's pretty qualified. I mean, wouldn't you say? I mean, really. Like if I'm gonna get golf lessons and like Jack or Tiger comes along, Zach, I'll give you some pointers. I mean, those are the two greatest golfers ever to have walked the planet. Pretty good guys to give advice for my golf swing, right? Extreme gives credential for me. If I want guitar lessons, I'm gonna get guitar lessons from someone that's a really good guitar player like Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys or John Mayer or somebody that can absolutely shred. I mean, extreme gives credibility for me. Now, Jesus has endured temptation to the most extreme that anyone will ever experience. So that when we look at our temptation, and, oh, it's so difficult, it's so hard. Not like Jesus is. And when Jesus says, hey man, I'll help. He has some credentials, doesn't he? Not only have we been promised that God will not allow temptation that exceeds our own breaking point, but we have Jesus who endured the most extreme, the, mo the worst of the worst. He's available to help us in our own time of need. Can't we depend on him? Verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. In verse one, Mark says, you know, let me tell you the story of Jesus. Verses two through eight, we're, we learn Jesus had an advanced man, his name being John. Verses nine through 11, Jesus was baptized by this advanced man revealing himself to the world. Verses 12 and 13, we're told Jesus spent 40 days being tempted in the wilderness. And now verses 14 and 15, what is Mark doing? Mark's actually summarizing the entire first year of Jesus' ministry. Now in summarizing the entire first year of Christ's ministry, Mark actually answers several important questions for us right from the beginning. I mean, he summarizes a whole year of which there were only three. So it's important for us to at least look at this verse for a moment. The first question Mark answers for us is when did Jesus' ministry begin? Now the answer is after John was put in prison. John's ministry and his ministry style, it ruffled feathers, mainly King Herod's wife, living mistress, brother's wife, Herodias, however you want to refer to her. She got a little ticked off by John and his brazen approach, which led John being arrested, placed in prison, and ultimately his execution. He was beheaded. But don't forget, John's role was to prepare the way. He was the advanced man. And once Jesus had arrived on the scene, 
it was time for John to get out of the way. As a matter of fact, John, in his own words, said, I need to decrease so that Jesus and his ministry could increase. Many of Jesus' earliest followers had actually been disciples of John. The progression from one ministry to the next ministry was critical. The second question addressed here by Mark and the summary is where did Jesus' ministry centralize? The answer, Jesus came to Galilee. Now, Galilee was a region comprised of approximately 15 or so cities that surrounded the Sea of Galilee, which was 14 miles wide or long and seven miles in girth or seven miles wide, 14 by seven. You can look across the thing. It's not very big. Now, some scholars speculate that this region of Galilee surrounding the Sea of Galilee during the first century contained a population in upwards of maybe two million people. It was a high area of concentrated population, making it ideal for ministry. Now, though the region is in Israel, during Jesus' day, it would have contained a high mixture of both Jew and Gentile communities because it was under Roman control. Most of these communities were subdivided by different cities, but there were some cities themselves that contained a mixture even down to local neighborhoods. In contrast to Judea, which you would call the Bible Belt of Jesus' day, Galilee was not a religious center. It did not have a high educational emphasis. If you need a good mental picture for what Galilee was, as a fishing community, it was a blue-collar area. So, where did Jesus' ministry centralize? It was the region of Galilee, a blue-collar area. The third question is, what was the primary focus of Jesus' ministry? The answer is preaching. Now, for me, I find this fascinating. That though Mark will begin and will focus, will primarily centralize his examination of the life of Christ onto Jesus' deeds and actions and activities, before he gets into all of this, he makes sure his audience and you and I know and are completely aware that Jesus' primary ministry focus is preaching. Now, he focuses the whole book on actions, deeds, activities, but before he gets into any of it, he's like, let me let you know. Let me make sure you're aware that of all the things Jesus did, the thing most important was his preaching ministry. Now, there are lots of terms that you can attribute to Jesus. Miracle worker, healer, visionary, revolutionary, leader, prophet, savior, servant, maybe even entertainer. But the one word that Jesus would use, the one word Jesus would want attributed to his ministry first and foremost would be preacher. Jesus was a preacher. Which leads us to our fourth question. What was the message of his preaching? Well, the answer, the, go the gospel of the kingdom of God, that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand so that we should repent and believe in the gospel. Now, please understand that Mark is not saying that this was the sermon that Jesus would travel around Galilee preaching to the people, but rather that this was the basis of his message. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, 
Wait a second. Jesus' sermons were under 30 words and took less than 15 seconds to preach. Pastor Zach, you should really tighten things up a little bit because you're not being Christ-like in your preaching. Understand Jesus' ministry centralized. He's summing it up, what the message was. It centralized on the kingdom of God. And he made it clear that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the time was now. It was here, and the people then should repent and believe in the gospel. Now, it's helpful to understand that there was an obvious disconnect between what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God and what the Jews were looking for and the kingdom of God. You know, the Jews wanted and were looking for a physical, political kingdom and king who would drive out the Romans and establish Israel as a world-governing superpower. That's what the people wanted and were looking for. Now, though it's true that the Messiah would at some point establish a physical kingdom on earth, the Jewish leaders had completely overlooked the initial role of the Messiah, and that was he was to be the savior of sins. When Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, he was not referring to a physical kingdom, but rather a spiritual kingdom where he would transform the lives of people. Understand at this point, Jesus was more interested in freeing people from the bondage of sin than freeing Jews from the rule of the Romans. Let me give you an example of his message, a sermon that's included in Luke chapter 4. Let me read it for you, because this will give you a good idea of how the basis of Jesus' message was the kingdom of God, but then how it played itself out into the substance. We're told in verse 16, so Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read to the people, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. Now, this is what Jesus, this was his morning's text. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then when he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, all the eyes of everyone who were in the synagogue were fixed upon Jesus. What's he going to say? And then Jesus began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God, not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom that would be brought how? Through Jesus himself transforming lives. Recovery of sight to the blind, to heal the brokenhearted, to cause lame people to walk, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You know what's interesting to me is that Jesus' preaching was Jesus-centric. Jesus' preaching was all about Jesus. You know, it's true that you can't come to the kingdom of God. You can't experience the spiritual work Jesus wants to perform in your heart and through your life until you first repented of your sinful life or literally to turn around or to change your direction and then believe in the gospel or literally to live a life of dependence 
on the good news. And what was that? It was that Jesus came to save. Verse 16. And as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, so Mark has summarized a year of Jesus' ministry, which means we're a year in. As Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, it's a good place to be, that's where his ministry was, that he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. And when they had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called after them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went after Jesus. The scene of activity here is very simple. Jesus has been engaged in ministry in Galilee for a year. He's been teaching and preaching to the people of this region, a message that centralized on the kingdom of God. The gospel of John makes it clear that when Jesus is walking on the shore and looks at Peter and Andrew and then later James and John, that this was not their first interaction with Jesus that this wasn't like the introduction, that this stranger walks up, says, come follow me, and boom, they were like, right on, don't even know who you are, but I'm sick of the fishing thing. No, for a year, understand, for a year, these guys had spent their time listening to Jesus preach. They had listened to countless sermons. They had actually even hung out with Jesus, according to John's gospel. They had gotten to know him. Jesus had shared his heart. This was not a cold call. They had spent a year in fellowship and building a relationship. And then one day, Jesus is walking by. He sees these guys and he calls them to be his followers. And all four of them, Peter and Andrew and James and John, immediately left behind their businesses and their livelihoods to embark on this new journey. Now, the first observation I don't have too many questions based on this text. It's pretty cut and dry. But my first observation is if Jesus, even after spending a year getting to know them, would still call them to be his followers, then Jesus will call anyone. I mean, understand something that you might miss from the text. The first century educational system was very simple. Every Jewish male child would go to the synagogue and would be taught the Torah. They would memorize the Torah. Now, some kids were good at this and other kids not so good at this. And so the kids that really showed promise and potential and had a knack for learning, kind of book smart, they were, after they had memorized the Torah, promoted to the next round of education. Those that showed that they, it just wasn't their thing. They were told that that wasn't their thing and that they should go home and learn their father's business. Like learn a trade. Listen, son, education, that's going to work. You need to go to a technical school. Go hang out with pops and learn whatever he's doing because that's your gig. Now, those that got promoted, they would continue their studies by memorizing the rest of the Old Testament. Once again, some kids would show promise, other kids not so much. Those kids that just couldn't cut it, 
Well, they were given the same order. Hey, good try, good effort, good attempt, but your scores are just not high enough. You need to go home and learn that trade. Now, those that really were the brightest of the bright, they were the smartest kids that made their way through school. Once they graduated, this is what took place. They would interview for an apprenticeship from the local rabbis. Rabbis would come to town. You've gone through your education. You've proven to be smart. You would sit there at the feet of the rabbi. You would ask the rabbi questions. He would answer the questions. They always judged intelligence based off the questions you asked versus the answers you gave. So you would ask questions, the rabbi would answer, and he would then have a choice to make. Ah, I don't think this kid cuts it, and he moves on. Or he sees promise, potential, he likes the questions. And so literally the rabbi at this point would look to this kid and say, son, come follow me. Come follow me. And in calling that young man to follow him, to be his disciple, he was as the rabbi in his mind saying, this is a kid that will be able to do what I do and can represent me and one day replace me. This was the whole way things operated. Now, Jesus is a rabbi, and this is what blows my mind. He's a rabbi. He's making his way on the shore, and he calls Peter, James, and John doing what? What are they doing? They're mending their nets. They're working their family business. They're not in school. They're not interviewing for the job, which tells me that the very fact that Andrew and Peter and James and John were working jobs as fishermen indicates that they were not the brightest of the bright, that they weren't the smartest. They weren't the, the sharpest tool in the shed. As a matter of fact, no rabbi would have ever chosen these four guys to be his followers. These men were common, normal, run-of-the-mill guys who lived very simple lives. And yet, Rabbi Jesus he calls these four fishermen to be his followers. No rabbi would ever have done this. Jesus chose them to travel with, to learn from him, to be discipled by him. But then what? As all rabbis would do, to one day represent him to the world. Please note, Jesus didn't choose the wealthiest, the brightest, the most educated, the best equipped people to be his disciples. Jesus instead called men who were what? who are simply willing to forsake all to follow him. To forsake all to follow him. I like what David Guzik says concerning Jesus' call. He says, they were, not, they were chosen not for who they were, but for what Jesus could do through them. Understand, you are very inadequate. Every rabbi would probably pass over you, but not Jesus. Jesus looks at you, the common man, the common person. And he says, I'm calling you to follow me. And he believes in you. And he's going to challenge you. My second observation is that following Jesus requires letting go of your nets. I mean, both interactions, Andrew and Peter and James and John, Mark tells us that they immediately did what? They left their nets to follow Jesus. And I want you to think for a moment in closing, what was tied into these nets? I mean, the first thing tied into these nets was their identity. 
they were known as fishermen, fishermen from Galilee. It was not just what they did in many ways, it was who they were. Their fathers were fishermen and their grandfathers were fishermen. Fishing, it was in their blood. It's what they had always known. But we see that these men, they were willing to do what? Upon the call of Christ, they were willing to let go of their old identity for a new one that they would find in Jesus. They would no longer be known as fishermen from Galilee, but they would be known as followers, disciples of Jesus. They let go of that old identity in pursuit of a new one. Hey, if Jesus is called, and he has, my question is, are you willing to let go of the person you are or were for the person Jesus desires to transform you into? He calls us all. Are you willing to let your nets behind? The second thing that was tied into these nets was their livelihoods. I mean, they made their living as fishermen. It's how they provided for their families. It's how they put food on the table. It's how they put a roof over their head. But we see that these men were willing to forsake the pleasures of the world, the simple provision for the joy found in the life following Jesus. Let me ask, if you were called, are you willing to let go of your job and to trust the Lord to provide for your needs? If Jesus called you to full-time ministry or he called you to overseas missions or he called you to spend more time at home, are you willing to let go of that job to follow Jesus where he's leading? The third thing we see tied into these nets is their security. Their future security was tied into the money they made with their fishing business. It was their retirement plan. It was their 401k. It was the inheritance they would give to their own children. But we see that these men were willing to forgo temporary security for the eternal security of the life that they had found in Jesus. The greater inheritance would be Christ not a fishing company. If Jesus called and asked you to make a move into the unknown, a move into what's not secure, my question is, would you have the faith to take the step, even if you couldn't see where you were stepping? No doubt, the particular application of these points can vary from person to person, from you and from me. But you know, here's one thing that's crystal clear. To be a follower of Jesus, there are three things required of you. A new identity found in Christ, complete trust in the person of Christ, and faith to follow Christ wherever he might lead you. A new identity, trust, and faith in Christ. That's what's required to be a follower. To respond to the call. This morning, most of you are believers. Some of you are hearing the call and have never responded. You should. Jesus is calling. Jesus believes in you. Jesus wants you to follow him because he loves you. But you know, there are some of us that we've experienced the call 
and we've tried to follow Jesus, but we've really never let go of those nets. We've really not let go of all. We sing the song, I Surrender All. Have you surrendered all? These guys let go. What's funny is later on, in a period of uncertainty, what did they do? They actually came back to the nets for a period of time until Jesus comes onto the shore and calls them again. And so this morning, maybe you've gone back and you've picked up those nets. Jesus is calling again. And so, Father, Lord, 